Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is October 18th of 2012, and our guest is Dr. Anna Baranowski, who is an expert on PTSD and also on compassion fatigue. She's written two books on the topic. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest is Dr. Anna Baranowski. Um, she is the executive director of the Traumatology Institute in Canada. She's the author of What is PTSD? Steps, Three Steps to Healing Trauma. And uh, another book I listed on the description, I forgot the title right now. She's here with us, and we're going to ask her the title. Anna, how are you doing this evening? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. What's the title of the other book that you have out? Trauma Practice, Tools for Stabilization and Recovery. But really, you know, we've we've actually written a whole lot of stuff. And um, those are the two books that are published on the market, but we have a whole bunch of materials that we um, we provide, um, CDs that are self-help guides and, you know, things like that, that, you know, we realize that there's a lot of ways to reach people. And, you know, one of the biggest ways that we reach people is we try to train clinicians in really good approaches to dealing with trauma. Do you offer online courses? Yes, we do. We actually have an online site called... Uh, Tick Learn, that's triple W T I C L E A R N dot com. But you know, you can just find it if you do a search on any search engine for Traumatology Institute. And the courses we're getting great reviews on the courses and you know the the really rewarding thing is that we know that, you know, the people that those clinicians are seeing are getting really good care. And that's really been the mission of the work. Well, I think a lot of people these days, more people are hearing the term PTSD. And what does PTSD stand for? What do those letters stand for? And what is it? And how does it come about? So post-traumatic stress disorder is what you're talking about. And with post-traumatic stress disorder, we've been exposed to some serious injury or some illness or some event that left us feeling that we were at risk of harm for our life or our well-being or somebody that we know that we're close to or we are aware of is at risk. Okay. So it's caused by a trauma, clearly. That's part of its name. Um, uh, Do we know anything about the physiology, the neurochemistry, what happens that brings about PTSD? Well, there are, there are a number of different things that can occur when we experience PTSD, but let, let's just start with just the, uh, the nervous system because that just um, drives so much of it. So everybody has this fight-or-flight system. You know, we're going to just keep it as simple as possible. So everybody has a fight-or-flight-or-freeze system. And when you've been exposed to something that's very disturbing, that makes you feel like you're really at risk, we're going to do one of three things normally. We're going to try and run away, we're going to try and stay and fight, or we will simply be so overwhelmed by an event that we might freeze. So, you know, a a freezing event might be like a deer in the headlights or, you know, when a cat is chasing a mouse, the, the mouse may actually just freeze. And that is actually an adaptive response because what happens if we freeze is that the cat stops being interested and that mouse can get up um, if the cat is bored and actually live through what they've experienced. So that kind of boredom feature, the, the frozen response, can actually be very adaptive when we're in a very dangerous situation. So the nervous system is really important because what's going to happen is 
you're going to have this response set. Now, that's going to get kind of woven into your body so that, you know, in the future, if you have experienced a trauma in the future, you're going to have a memory of that trauma that goes along with all of the strong physiological and emotional responses. So it's like the body can reignite years later as if it's experiencing the event today. And that's really, you know, what's happening with the body in the moment of trauma. It's like it gets locked in, and that's what really makes it uh, important that we work through these traumatic events because they can continue bothering us and disturbing us for years afterwards because of the way that it impacts us in our bodies and our minds. Uh, Do traumatic incidents do things in our brain that interfere with our memory processes? Yes, absolutely they can. And, you know, when when that happens, when we have a very extreme event, the mind is not going to store the memory in the way we store a normal um, memory. So we could experience um, a shocking event and only have fragments of that event. It makes it very difficult when we, we try to recall the event itself because we might not have a coherent um, memory from start to finish of what happened to us and how it impacted us personally. So if we have these just little kind of shards of memories, when they come to the surface, we have really no way of processing through it completely because they're not coming in an intact, fully um, coherent memory. And so, you know, if we we try to understand what's going on with us, sometimes people describe feeling that they're not really in the moment, that something happened. Let's say they were um, almost hit or they were hit by a red car. And the moment was so shocking to them that now any time they see a red car, they experience a kind of a overwhelming fear and shock. But it, it what's happening is it's really taking them back to that memory fragment of being hit by the car. They might not even have the full memory of the event any longer because it was so shocking to the body. So we don't process it fully. So in the moment later, when the event has occurred, we're now only processing and retrieving a fragment, but that fragment comes along with all of the emotions. The the hippocampus, and the amygdala are very closely connected. And they are two parts of the brain that are very involved in this type of processing. So what can happen is um, the hippocampus takes the, the memory and it will store it. But the hippocampus and the amygdala are closely connected. And the amygdala is very much involved in, in um, emotional uh, content and making sense of emotional content. So it's kind of the emotional regulator of the body. So what's happening is it is very connected to memories that are stored. And if we have a strong memory with a very powerful emotion, when we have that emotional content ignited through the memory, it's like we're feeling it again. So the whole the body and the mind are very woven in what happens in our minds um, absolutely impacts our bodies. So it's a, a real connected um, mind-body response when we're experiencing um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I remember hearing about some research about eyewitness accounts of things like bank robberies or other crimes, and they said that this was one of the reasons why the eyewitness accounts are not very good trial evidence. They might not be always good evidence, yeah, because we don't necessarily have, as I said before, um, intact memory. Like it, it may be uh, stored just as fragments of the event because the brain is really kind of overwhelmed with all of this information that's coming at it. Like, And what you're doing as well in the moment of a trauma is you're trying to get through the event to to survive it. So you will take in a lot of information very rapidly and you may actually feel like the event is going in slow motion, but actually what ends up happening is we have sped up 
to collect, process, and deal with information rapidly. So anything that doesn't seem like it's important, we're not going to focus on it because we're all about survival in the moment. Now, PTSD has become a very common term that we hear a lot these days, but does it have historical precedents that go back to, say, World War One or World War Two? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, they, they used to call it things like shell shock, and, you know, the, the names that they used didn't necessarily address what was happening to the individual. A lot of it was military-based. Um, Charles Figley, Dr. Charles Figley did a lot of research with um, Vietnam veterans and, you know, he collected hundreds of interviews and actually his work was quite fundamental in um, developing the diagnostic criterion for post-traumatic stress disorder and the really terrific thing about uh, PTSD is that it gives us a framework for which to understand what happens and the kinds of uh, significant symptoms that somebody who's experienced a trauma might have. And that is a really, really important piece because, you know, you're, you're going to have some very, very classic responses that um, PTSD helps us to understand and account for, you know, things like um, re-experiencing the event. So um, we may have something that happened many, many years ago, but it keeps on kind of being relived in a way. You know, it it doesn't just go away. The memory keeps on coming back. Um, we also might experience something um, like uh, avoidance. And, you know, we, we do that because we have these strong feelings. So it does make sense that a, a person is going to want to withdraw from what's so disturbing to them. However, it, it creates this narrowing down of our ability to really kind of be fully engaged in life. So we may end up having very little that we feel safe to do. Um, and, you know, we may also experience hyperarousal. So, you know, that's when we have these very, very strong feelings that just come up and we may not always know what it is that's igniting those strong feelings. But as I had mentioned before, this idea of the red car, if we were hit by a red car, then every time we walk down the street and we see a red car, even if it's just a flash, we may have very strong feelings and not really understand that oh, it was the red car we saw. Well, maybe we'll go into a store the next week and we'll see a red coat. And it might start to give us the same feeling and we may just start to avoid feel, getting anywhere close to the color red because these things have a tendency to um, spread like um, a very strong um, tendency and trend. So things that we had a shocking response to may now um, go into many different areas of our of our lives. Like if we had a bad experience with a dog, we we may want to avoid all dogs, small or large, and then all animals. This re-experiencing, is this commonly called flashbacks? It, it may be experienced as a flashback, certainly. Yeah, that's not an unusual way of experiencing it. Um, you could also just have very strong memories. You might have a dream or a nightmare. Um, you might have um, a reaction from a sound or a smell or a person or a color or a song. There's, there's a lot of things that can happen that feel that um, are very strong that can intrude. And so and it may be a flashback, but it may be many things. Okay. Another one that's common is dissociation. Tell us what is dissociation. So dissociation is really when we are having an experience that takes us almost out of our body or out of our regular uh, conscious awareness. You know, it comes in a number of different um, um, methods, but, um, you know, in one of my clients from quite a few years ago uh, described it so well when she said that she had parked her car, went into a store, 
got into an argument or a disagreement with somebody, and at that point going forward, she didn't know where she was, where her car was, or how she was going to get home. She just had this sense of being out of her body and not really being within her own life. So she was watching herself almost walk around and try to make sense of things, but she just felt completely numb and unable to fully put the pieces of her her life together or even how she got into the building. I think that a couple of the couple of uh, ways that uh, dissociation manifests itself. One is called depersonalization and another is called derealization. And maybe you could tell us what those are. Right. So you might have an experience of depersonalization. And when that happens, you actually have a sensation of being out of your body. Um, it can be extremely disturbing. So you're you're now not really um, very grounded within yourself. Um, and, and an interesting thing to be aware of with depersonalization and derealization is that um, children who were um, abused when they were younger or experienced significant trauma are much more um, at risk of these dissociative um, fragments occurring. So, so that is something to, to keep in mind as well. And derealization is really when you are disconnected from reality. So who you are, how you're functioning in the world, you know, uh, just a, a sensation of things being unreal. And so, you know, the, this kind of feeling can be extremely disturbing. I mean, when we think of trying to function in the world with these kinds of reactions, it can be very upsetting and disturbing. However, it is not always um, a symptom that every um trauma survivor experiences, nor is it something that everybody with PTSD um, is experiencing either. Do we see more drinking or drug use in people that have experienced uh, traumatic events and have PTSD? Well, you know what, I think that's a really, really great question, Ken, and I know because um, the focus of your um, of your radio show is largely um, about uh, uh, drinking and that is something that I do see with a lot of individuals, that there is a tendency at times to turn towards something that might make them feel better in the short run. And I'm not going to say that everybody who experiences a trauma turns towards drinking or drug use, but a lot of people who I've worked with who have turned to drinking and drug use seem to have a history of things that are unresolved in their lives and a tendency to use avoidance or suppression as a way of dealing with those really strong unresolved emotions. And it is quite unfortunate because, you know, I, I think there is, um, you know, a, a lot. there are a lot of people who have not necessarily um, received the kind of care that might benefit them and help them to make choices that lead to the best life they possibly can have. Um, there was a, a great recent study that um, used um, tarantulas, and um, this was a study with 88 people with a strong fear of spiders. And as people started to talk about their emotions and their anxieties and their fear, they were able to move closer and closer to the spiders, and some of them were even able to touch the spider if they were in in the part of the study where um, the individuals were encouraged to speak about their discomfort and their fear and all of this. So although many of us want to avoid or suppress our strong emotions, when our emotions are expressed, they actually help us deal with fearful feelings. But, you know, in, in many cultures and in... Um, and when I say cultures, I'm not even talking about different countries uh, or different religious backgrounds, but there's cultures in different organizations. And, you know, in some of the cultures, there's an encouragement to suppress it, to be stoic, to, you know, um, not talk about our discomforts. And yet that seems to be a great 
key to working through our traumatic history. Now, I'm going to mention a couple past shows we did because they tie into what we're talking about right now. And maybe our listeners want to go back and listen to them again sometime. We talked to Dr. Gabor Mate, and Pat Denning has also talked about this. And that is that stressful events in your environment, especially when you're young uh, and growing up, they can actually turn on and off genes. And there seems to be a lot of evidence that uh, traumatic events in uh, adolescence and childhood can turn on the genes for addiction. So that's uh, something we discussed earlier. Another thing we discussed a little bit, well, a lot in our last show was some of these classic addiction treatment programs um, based on Synanon really were kind of torture therapy and totally traumatized, you know, the, the subjects of the therapy, um, you know, like, making people wear diapers, nothing but a diaper for a week instead of clothes because they violated some rule. And what do you think about this uh, re-traumatizing people who maybe are have already been traumatized? That's why they're using substances. Oh, yeah. And I have a, a tremendous amount of compassion for people who turn to uh, drugs and alcohol because I do understand that what is at root is a desire to you know, in most cases, to deal with strong emotions. And so absolutely I would not use anything like that. It just seems like uh, something very archaic, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I really believe that people can move towards trauma recovery and working through and, you know, making sense of, of their choices and even working on addictions using an approach that is much more gentle. If, for example, somebody is experiencing a, um, a PTSD and they feel ready to work on those things, that's great. But if they are also using some kind of substance, they may find that if they make the decision to stop using you know, the alcohol or drugs, whatever it is that they're, that they're using, um, they may find that actually the symptoms, the emotional symptoms get very strong and become worse. And if they're in a program that is not trauma-informed care, then they can find themselves in a lot of trouble. So, you know, when I say trauma-informed care, let's say there are, they're in some kind of an addictions program, um, but the program does not recognize that, you know, for many of the people in the program, they may be experiencing um, historical trauma. As they go off of the whatever their substance is, the symptoms, the memories of, of the trauma, they now don't have anything to, um, to assist them on some level with, with their memories. So although I am a strong believer in working through, we also have to recognize that things have to um, proceed using a gentle approach if somebody's going to have a secure resolution to both the addictions and the trauma. Why wouldn't they just go back to drinking or using drugs if the trauma isn't dealt with and they don't have good resources for doing that or if the program is re-traumatizing them? There wouldn't be a lot of motivation. Now, harm reduction therapy approach that's taken by, say, Andrew Tatarski or Pat Denning, who've talked about this, um, they say that they don't require abstinence before they start treating, you know, the psychiatric symptoms, um, which, you know, it's kind of a departure from the traditional thing, which said you have to go to an abstinence program, be totally abstinence before we'll do give you any mental health care. What do you think of uh, that, treating people who might still be using drugs? Well, I think that that is actually, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense simply because this whole idea of trauma, um, if they have not had the opportunity to work through their trauma, then they're going to be dealing with two things at once. They're going to be dealing with the extreme intrusion of whatever their trauma history is, and they're going to be dealing with the, the impact of working through getting off an addiction that they may have had for a long time. So it, it seems that the harm reduction is actually showing good results. And it's letting people feel that they can work through this one step at a time. Now, I, I mean, I do understand that there there's a whole history of 
this um, immediate abstinence, but there's also been a whole history of uh, failure with that approach as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they're finding really good results with harm reduction and, you know, it's a slower approach, then certainly it's something to keep an open mind to. And I think there is some goodness that comes out of harm reduction because we can see people making better choices and then they start feeling better about themselves, which is, that's the point, isn't it? I think so. That's my experience, too, is, you know, when people can start making one small positive change, they start feeling better, and then they want to make another small positive change, and pretty soon they have made a big change in small increments. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, because I, I do, this is the piece that I'm, I'm very aware of, is that when people start to move towards releasing whatever addiction, they then notice an increase in the symptoms related to historical trauma. And if we don't put something in place so that they could work that work through that slowly with guidance and with a lot of support, then it it really results in a in a situation where they're flooded with so much distress without a lot of guidance. And so, you know, one step at a time makes a lot of sense. It's like, you know, if you want to uh, to actually um, work through something, I love I love the idea of uh, shaking up a, a Coke bottle and then only letting it off a little bit at a time. Like, we know what happens if you shake the Coke bottle and then you open it up right away. It just kind of explodes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you shake the Coke bottle and then you open up just a little bit at a time we get this release that occurs over time and doesn't feel like an explosion. So, you know, this is how I'm thinking about trauma work as well. Okay. I think that's a good point to look at your book, um, What is PTSD? The Three Steps to Healing Trauma. And let's just look at the first step. What is the first step? Uh, The first step is my favorite step, finding calm. So really what we're doing here is we're trying to find all sorts of approaches that are going to give the individual an opportunity to find comfort and to get to a place where they recognize that they can always search for this and find it. It doesn't mean that you're going to find it right away because for most of us, especially if we're feeling upset about something, you know, it might, it's going to take some work to to gain those skills. I I always encourage people to work on something that they're going to take on on a regular basis so that they're practiced with it. And then when they are upset about something, they can search for that comfort because they know what it feels like. If we've never really practiced anything that allows us to feel comfortable or to find calm then it's hard to find it when we really need it. So, you know, a couple of the exercises in the book, you know, are really exercises that you can do every single day. I've got an exercise in here called 3-6 breathing. And 3-6 breathing is a great approach for people who are trying to figure out how to settle down their nervous system. And the breath really is a wonderful tool, especially if you've, figured out how to do it in a way that is very restorative and gives your body a sense of having resources. So even when you're stressed, you can find that breath and settle yourself down. And that can be the basis of of all the work that needs to come later in terms of working through the trauma and um, reconnecting with the things that are important to you, which are the other two steps. Okay, you talk about self-soothing as well. So what are some self-soothing techniques? So, okay, so we've got this very, very focused approach on breathing. And I will just mention, um, if people go to the What is PTSD website, you'll be able to find a really good breathing exercise. Um, And if you're interested in uh, doing our short um, self-survey, you can find that on the website as well. But um, so one of the things is finding comfort, and then we have a number of different exercises that help us relax by focusing on our own internal language. Um, We also have exercises 
that help us understand what it is to, you know, kind of talk to ourselves in a new way. I mean, you know, being able to encourage a sense of self-compassion. You know, this is one of the exercises that is actually, you know, quite good. It's it's based on some of the newer research by Karen Neff, and she talks a lot about self-compassion and building uh, a sense of kind of kindness towards ourselves. You know, sometimes we're really kind to other people, but we we don't seem to have that same impulse towards ourselves. And this can be a real breakthrough exercise for some people. So we also work with um, exercises around grounding and containment, and that's really kind of being aware of what is happening right around us in this moment and grounding ourselves through our senses. And that can be pretty a pretty powerful exercise as well. So the book actually goes through uh, a number of different exercises, you know, really step by step. So people can work through these things on their own. And I do understand that not everybody is going to be comfortable working on uh, this kind of work alone. But there are many therapists that are trained and can work with them through the materials in the book. Okay, I have to do a little plug here for another of our past shows. We interviewed Dr. Neff about her book, Self-Compassion, so you can go back and listen to that interview, too, if you want to. good. Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. We've had a lot of really good people, and I've been so fortunate that so many good people have accepted my invitation. Ah, wonderful. Well, you know, it's a good opportunity to talk to people about, you know, something that we hope will make a difference. And, you know, for us, a big piece of this is actually hoping that, you know, we can get the book into the hands of people it could help. And also that, you know, because this really is based on years of work with with trauma survivors, you know, we've seen what works well. And in, in seeing that, you know, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of joy in seeing people recover from trauma and and do better in their lives. Yes, there is. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of joy in seeing people just do better. Uh, let's move on. Let's look at step two. Okay, so step two is really remembering your trauma. And I'm just going to mention that you know with with each of the steps, we've we've made sure that we've included a lot of recovery stories. Um, you know. There are many different kinds of clients in my practice, and certainly in Teresa Lowers as well, my co-author. Um, you know, and we try to identify the the different kinds of traumas that um, we've heard about, and you know, really to understand that you know many people from a, a lot of different backgrounds can recover. So, you know, I had mentioned before this whole idea of this. Um, research that was done um, that suggests that if we talk about our emotions, we feel less fear. And it's kind of a congruence between the the feelings that we have, and instead of suppressing or pretending that you know we have these strong feelings, really embracing and accepting and understanding and working through. So there needs to be a kind of a presence and a um, an awareness of the event itself. One of the things that I do with my clients is I ensure that they've got a good grounding in finding comfort, you know, creating that emotional stabilization before they move into remembering trauma because we want to give them the best ability to settle down their body. That seems to be absolutely crucial in terms of their success in working through through their uh, trauma history. So there's a lot of different exercises here in the um, Remembering Trauma section, and a number of them actually give them exercises for working through their trauma story while they're in a calm state. And so it's that pairing of emotional comfort with the trauma itself that can really help to restore the memory 
um, and help them actually even in the future. So remember that we had talked before about when we experience a very significant trauma, it might get stored in the brain, you know, along with all the explosive emotions and the physiological responses. Well, when we take out that memory again and we ground ourselves into safety and comfort and we work through the memory, the details of the memory, and then restore it again in our in our minds, in our bodies, we're restoring it kind of as a whole narrative, the whole story, but in a calmer state. So now in the future, if you see that red car come by or a red coat or something that might have reminded you of the trauma of the past, it may not reignite to the same degree in the future because you've done all this work around it in a calmer state. So that becomes really a pivotal point. And it's largely the reason that that this work that we've been doing works. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this because, you know, the first time I heard that, you you know, a long time ago, that uh, PTSD was being treated by having people re-experience, and I was... You know, it, it popped into my mind, is there some therapist that's confronting people and say, you have to confront your trauma, and the, this patient is resisting and say, no, I don't want to remember that, and they're trying to force them to it. But it's not that at all, is it? Is that, could that be harmful? Well, I certainly wouldn't do that with any of my clients. I'm really a strong believer that, you know, we, we have to have a readiness with inside of ourselves, and a big piece of that readiness comes from, this finding calm. And until we can really do that and demonstrate it to ourselves and practice it regularly so that when when we really need it, we have access to it, uh, I don't think people are ready. And, you know, I don't think that we want to just push somebody into reviewing their trauma because that in itself can be traumatizing. When we're not stabilized, if you're in a state of anxiety because somebody's trying to force you to do something, well, it seems that that might be traumatizing as well, especially if it's, you know, the, the, the reason you're getting pushed is so that you'll review something that was very disturbing to you. You know, usually when we have experienced the trauma, we feel at our most vulnerable state. If you have a therapist asking you to, you know, review your your trauma before you're ready, well, it seems that you would be igniting a very vulnerable state. And the whole idea is to take this finding calm and comfort and safety and bring that into reviewing trauma. Then you've got a powerful combination of recovery. Okay. Are there exercise? You have exercises here for uh, remembering your trauma. Tell us a little bit about the exercises. There are there are, there are a lot of exercises in here, and with remembering trauma. Each one of these exercises really gets the individual to pair the the traumatic event itself with um, comfort. So they would work on um, deciding whichever finding comfort exercise was the best for them, and then they would work on an exercise that is a good fit for them. So, for example, um, layering is an exercise that encourages them to identify uh, a traumatic event while they're working with their breath. And they're layering. They're they're kind of going from breathing to the memory of the event and back and forth. And in doing this, they start to move deeply into the story itself, but only step by step and along with that stabilization or the comfort that the breathing is is giving them. So it's a really good opportunity for them to pair the event that was so disturbing in the past with the, the breath. And as we're breathing and we're calming our bodies down, it's kind of, um, it's very difficult to be both distressed and relaxed at the same time. That's just not the way the body works. So if you get yourself into a very deep sense of relaxation with your breath and you've practiced it, then as you start to work with um, the memory recall, it starts to get restored in the brain without all that explosive distress. So um, layering is something that we we work with 
um, because it's a self-mastery technique. It's an exercise that clients can do on their own, step-by-step. And again, I have mentioned this before. If somebody is finding that these exercises are are difficult for them and they they need some, some assistance working through them, then there are so many people that have been trained and can help. Um, we we actually have our our website um, trauma line one that has clinicians that have been skilled and trained in in trauma care, and so you know it's something just to keep in mind because although a self help approach may be really helpful for one person, it's not always the best approach for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just going to mention there's a lot more exercises here about remembering trauma, but we're going to need to move along and look at step three now. Tell us, tell us about step three. Okay, so step three is really reconnection. And, you know, of course, the whole purpose of this is for us to get to a point in our lives where we can get back into the things that felt the best about our lives. If we've experienced trauma since we were very young, for some of us, it might actually mean creating a life that's a new vision, you know, a way of moving into our world that's genuine and and that really does feel like it's the right fit for who we are today. Um, I I like this exercise that we work with, um, focusing on four primary reconnection exercises using something that's physical, something that's intellectual, something creative, and something that's really about personal growth. Exercises or activities that you do that involve other people. So you're trying to get yourself out of whatever um, isolation may have occurred as a result of the trauma. Now, what can happen for a lot of people is that as they experience a trauma, they start to withdraw from the things that they like doing before or they stopped doing things or they never actually even pursued things that were really wonderful that could have been great for them in life because of the the fear of the trauma. You know, it can really um, limit our circle. And, you know, life really is about widening our circle of connections and and feeling like we're, we're engaged in every possible meaningful way. And so, you know, as you go through the final section, it talks a lot about the different things that we can identify that may be beneficial to us as we as we strengthen in our lives and the sense of uh, developing attachments with people and, you know, connecting in ways that make us feel we are no longer alone. And the loneliness that can occur when we've experienced the trauma can be part of the problem. People tend to thrive more and feel... Um, stronger in their lives as a whole when they've got people around, when they feel their social connections are strong. It acts like an incredible buffer. Okay. I want to get on to one more topic before we finish up the show, and that is compassion fatigue. What is compassion fatigue? Okay. Compassion fatigue is a combination of secondary traumatic stress and burnout among care providers, whether they're professional or they're paraprofessional or they're volunteers or family members who are helping members of their family who are not well or have been injured themselves or have been traumatized. So, you know, a lot of the work in the area of compassion fatigue was uh, really started by, again, Dr. Charles Figley, and he wrote um, a couple of books on compassion fatigue and his more recent one, Treating Compassion Fatigue, I have um, written about our accelerated recovery program for compassion fatigue, and we we developed a five-step model in which we we looked at the the kinds of things that were happening to professional care providers, and one of the things that we found was most common was that there was a tendency for professional care providers not to really care for themselves. They're really good at caring for other people, but not so much for themselves. Kind of a a self-selection going into a field where you're really caring for other people. Uh, I just wrote an article that's going to go into um, a book called Physician Heal Thyself, and it's really about doctors who are great copers, 
but they tend to not necessarily care for themselves in the same way because they have this other focus. They're really good at taking care of everything for everybody else, and they're going into a profession where really that that's what they've had to do is care for everybody else. So compassion fatigue, the symptoms that we see are largely the same symptoms that we see with PTSD. But the real issue is the individual has been focusing on and exposed to trauma that has occurred to those they are providing care for. And, you know, this can be a huge issue because for some people, let's say um, a, a nurse in an emergency unit may have been exposed to something that is exquisitely disturbing that they never would have necessarily been exposed to. And in in witnessing it, in talking with the patient, they may feel like they're being exposed to the event itself. Um, and, you know, here's where our compassion, it's, it's like a double-edged sword. So it's compassion that allows us to get close to those that we're caring for, but it's also compassion that leaves us open to all those strong feelings that the people we're trying to help share with us. So sometimes it becomes necessary, just as it is for anybody who's been exposed to a significant event, to really focus on our own needs and take care of ourselves. Because, you know, really, you know, anybody who goes into a caring field or cares for other people really needs to make it their own business to care for themselves so that they can do as well as anybody else in the long run. Okay. If we have an institution like, say, a hospital, for example, um, are there procedures and things that can be put into place to deal with the compassion fatigue that the staff experiences? And the second half of the question is, uh, are institutions putting these in place? Is there some movement to get something in place to deal with compassion fatigue? Well, it really depends on the organization, and there are some hospitals and some organizations that are doing an excellent job of that, and others that they're just not there yet, and so it is true that their staff may struggle, but there are all sorts of programs and resources and training um, seminars and workshops and, and different things that we can do when we pay attention to what we really need. You know, most of us have a sense of what we know would be helpful for us, um, we do a number of different training programs at the Institute, and we offer brief resiliency and recovery programs. We actually offer a couple of the programs that are uh, on our TickLearn website as well that um, are easy to take and that are on demand, and so people can just take the program whenever they want, just so that they can learn about the issue of compassion fatigue and understand if they're at risk, but also understand what kinds of resiliency exercises might be helpful for them as individuals. And, you know, the, the real issue is that, you know, going into fields where we're caring for others, we don't want to lose any of our heroes out there that are doing this really important work. And so, you know, it becomes a really important self-care strategy. If our organizations are not providing this for us, then we need to step up and really own that piece of it and just make it happen for ourselves. Now, can we use the same three steps that we use to treat PTSD? Can we use these to treat compassion fatigue? I think there is such a close link between compassion fatigue and PTSD that it wouldn't be unreasonable to use the three steps to healing trauma to work with symptoms of compassion fatigue. The one area that we would really need to address, though, is that self is that education piece. Because for a lot of care providers, it's hard for them to relate to the idea that just by being exposed to their clients, they could experience this extreme distress. It's also a struggle to accept the fact that, you know, we're vulnerable even though we're caregivers. And really a, another area that can get in, in the way is 
we don't want individuals to feel that they are losing all of their professional skills and ability simply by admitting that they're feeling overwhelmed. So, you know, there is an educational piece. There is a piece that is really important to address when thinking about compassion fatigue and working, especially with professional care providers. Well, I know my friend uh, Pat Denning at the uh, Harm Reduction Therapy Institute in San Francisco in Oakland. In her book, she talks about the people working there. They go through a regular debriefing process on a regular basis where they talk uh, through what they've experienced with their clients. And it's really helpful, you know, to work through, um, you know, any counter-transference that they're feeling. Um, well, my friend works from a psychodynamic approach, so she uses those terminologies, but um, she says it's very helpful for people to talk it through, you know, what they've experienced and before they go back and continue to work in the same field. That is, And that's great because that's that's one of those programs where they they understand that, as a care provider, there is a need and there has to be an outlet. So that just sounds like a perfect approach and it just makes it makes great sense. The, the, the organizations, and because I do um, a fair bit of organizational consulting, the organizations that seem to do the best are the ones, that, and I'm talking about in terms of staff retention and well-being, wellness programs and things like this, are the ones that have something that is ongoing, a regular Activity, some outlet, some way of recognizing um, or expressing or sharing um, that allows for a working through of the things that we've been exposed to. And I think it's so important because, you know, you, you don't want to hire staff and then, you know, lose people because they're they're getting overwhelmed by the work. Okay. We've talked for almost an hour. Did you realize that? Yeah, I did realize that. Yes, I, I did. I was um, paying attention to that. But you asked such great questions that uh, I think it was just easy to uh, to keep talking about this uh, this topic, and I appreciate that. Yeah, it went really fast, but it's time to wrap it up. So is there anything you would like to leave our audience with? I would just um, like to encourage people to make sure that if there is something that is unresolved in their history, to find the courage and allow yourself to work through because what I have seen consistently over the years in my practice is those are the people who really seem to be able to gain more energy because there is something about working through trauma that opens up a whole new world. And what is your website and the names of your books? What is PTSD.com? That's the website. And TickLearn.com for those who are looking for advanced training. And that's T-I-C-L-E-A-R-N. And the book is What is PTSD? Three Steps to Healing Trauma and Trauma Practice, Tools for Stabilization and Recovery. And I just wanted to thank you very much for inviting me to come on tonight. Well, thank you very much for being here, and everyone, uh, come back next week when our guest will be Dr. Uh, not Dr. Our guest will be Alexandra Dyer, uh, who is the Executive Director of the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center, and she's going to have several other people working at the center also participating, and actually this is my new job at the last two weeks, I've also been working there myself too. So um, it's going to be a really good show. Everyone, come back and listen again next week, and good night. <laughs>